Welcome back to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia. Join me each week as I have a conversation about death with someone closest to it. This week, I had the pleasure to interview renowned author and near-death study researcher, PMH Atwater. PMH Atwater began her career in the late 1970s after experiencing three NDEs herself. In this episode, we break down how people that have near-death experiences come back very different and what kind of things they can expect. As someone who believes that I experienced a near-death experience when I was just a baby, a lot of the things she says resonates. And if you haven't experienced an NDE, there's still a lot to take away from this. It really is amazing how people change after a near-death experience. So let's jump right into the interview. All right. Hello. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing absolutely great. And I hope you are too. I am. Um, For those listening at home, can you please tell us your name and who you are? My name is P.M.H. Atwater. And yes, that's really my name, P.M.H., you know, capital letters. Absolutely, that's my name. (laughs) And I've been researching near-death experiences since 1978. And all because I died three times in three months in uh, 1977, um, January 2, January 4, March 29. And then later that fall, I had three major relapses. I had to relearn how to, st- how to crawl, how to stand, how to walk, how to see properly, hear properly, and rebuild all my belief systems. So I had, uh, as you might call, a doozy. <laughs> And in my third near-death experience, among the things that happened was a voice. I call it the voice like none other. This voice was not like a guide or a guardian or an an archangel. or It was a voice that was bigger than the universe. And that voice said, and I quote, test revelation. You are to do the research. One book for each death. Book one was not named. Books two and three were. Uh, Book two is Future Memory. It's out there. (laughs) It is a real labyrinth. It's not a book. Sorry to disappoint you, but it's not a book. And the purpose of the book is to raise your consciousness up to the next highest level possible for you at that time. And the third book was A Manual for Developing Humans. And it's out there too. So that that was my assignment. And of of course, it took all of 1977 to... (laughs) <laughs> you know, be a human being again. And in 1978, in the fall of 1978, I left Idaho. I'm an Idahoan. I'm a Western woman. Um, I left Idaho and uh, journeyed across the United States and wound up in um, in the Washington, D.C. area. And that's where I began. I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. So I use police investigative techniques as my protocol. And interestingly enough, the, the first pla- places I was called upon to give a talk about my near-death experience was a police station. <laughs> so, um, yes, I'm a researcher. Began my work in 1978. It was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who helped me. And I've, I've been doing it ever since. 
Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. As we chatted before we started the interview, that I discovered your book, um, The Rest of the Story, uh, was the first book that I discovered of yours. And I read through that, and I was reading it on an airplane traveling back to visit my family. And I was reading the chapter of children who experience near-death experiences. And I started reading some of the characteristics of these children as they grow up and the characteristics that they exude. And I, when I got home to visit my mom, I said, Mom, I have something to ask you. I said, all of these things I'm reading in this book, did something happen to me when I was a baby? And she told me, she said, you died when you were about two months old. We did CPR on you. We revived you. And you lived, you've been totally normal ever since. Except normal in her sense was I have this intense intuitiveness, this weird ability. Like I was very studious in school when my siblings weren't. I was able to kind of understand certain things, but I lacked the ability to understand other things. And so just I realized that I think that I had a near-death experience as a baby. I just don't quite remember it as I was a newborn. So you kind of led me into this journey of understanding that something happened to me that gave me this greater understanding. And, you know, as an adult now, I'm actually looking at trying to understand what that means and, and how I can how I can live the rest of my life now that I have this information. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I say to you, I say to everybody, get the book the forever angels yes i have it <laughs> yeah it's about people who have their um near-death experience between birth and the age of five um those 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 folks are not like any other near-death experiencer at all they're in a class all by themselves the, and uh, they're the, the, the just simply not even to be compared with other near-death experiences experiencers they are so very very different and i'd like to i'd like to talk about that because these are these are the little ones you know, you know between birth and the age of five they have no before all they know is what we are what they are they're coming in from the other world that that flowing stream of consciousness and as they call it they simply take a dip the life and then they go back to the stream that's that's their understanding of what life is all about they come in most of them not all of them but most of them knowing more than the rest of us when we're little maybe even when they're when we're older <laughs> they're just so totally different even when we go to the uh, uh these big near-death conferences again you want to take those and put them in a class above uh, by themselves because they don't fit they never really fit um, they're always in a class by themselves and it's because they have no before. So when we take a good look at these kids, we find all kinds of interesting things about them. Um, and, and I'm sure about you as well. Many of them come in with a different sense and different senses, often with maybe synesthesia. 
Um, let's talk just a little bit about synesthesia. synesthesia. Let me get, it's an elaboration of the limbic system is what it, what it is. So you, you respond to stimuli a little bit differently. Let me give you an example of that. Um, myself, my first grade, no, I was not a near-death experience. I was just simply born with stenosthesia. And in the first grade, I was the only kid in school who could smell color, see music, and hear numbers. Well, that, that's truth. Everybody else thought I was lying. And that got to the point where I had to sit on a tall stool in front of the class as an example of a bad child who told lies. And I had to wear a, a conical hat that said dunce on it. And um, the principal of the school tried to kick me out twice. My mother wouldn't let, wouldn't let, wouldn't let him. So by the end of the school year, I was so traumatized by all of that that I became angry. I became very angry. And I, I just decided that all adults were stupid and I'm never going to be an adult when I grow up. <laughs> and I, I've sort of been like that all my life. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they come back very different. Um, and, th and that's an, that's the idea of synesthesia. Many of them have synesthesia. They, they come back looking at things very differently. I, I'd like to talk, I'd like to give some cases here to um, give us an idea of what's going on here. Um, certainly I've been, uh, I've been interviewing and working with child experiencers forever but i i finally decided i'm going to do a specialized study on them um and that and and this study involves 397 people uh, i was working with the those who were young the i had was four years old and going up to maybe their 20s so the, these were near-death experiencers looking forward then I went after those who had the experience and they were now in the mature years, like 80, 70, 60. And they had to verify having had a near-death experience. I had an 82-year-old woman, believe it or not, who could verify it. She said his sister that was like 67. <laughs> and she verified her experience for me. And I, and I wanted to, to see their view looking back did did yeah. did that make any difference in in your life just looking back so we're we're, we're looking up and then as an a mature adult looking back so that we can see the full round and and um the forever angels is the only study ever done on, on near-death experiences in the world that gives you the full round so, so we have an opportunity to look at it very differently. Of that 397 people, most of them could remember their birth. One third could remember life in the womb. 
a couple could remember um, conception. <laughs> One of them, when she was old enough, drew a picture of, of, yeah. of conception, showed it to her parents, and they were so embarrassed. She was completely right. You know, the position and everything. Uh, you know, one of those things. Um, so so when, when we're considering this, remember, we're talking about beings, souls who are coming in with a memory, with, with a knowledge of life that most of us don't have. And, and, you know, when you're looking at uh, the abortion issue, you know, it's like all of a sudden, oops, oops, oops. One third could remember her life in the womb. It's like, oops, wait a minute here. The woman's right to choose. Whoops, wait a minute here. In the book, I talk about that. I talk about the abortion issue. And I'm, and I'm saying, well, maybe it isn't the wo woman's right to choose. Maybe it's the soul's right to choose. We need to get we need to get busy and and contact the soul. That happened in, in my family. One of my daughters, she be, she became pregnant before she was ready to have a child, and she wanted to abort. And she said, um, came to me and said, "Well, what do I do? What do I do?" And I said, "Well, hey, go into deep meditation and have a talk." with the soul of that child inside of you. So she did. Turned out to be a little boy. And the boy was completely agreeable to going on. No problem at all. She could, uh, he could find another mother, father. So go ahead with the abortion. So she did. But, so, but sometimes the, soul, the souls might want to stay. And, you know, that's, that's a, an issue we all need to look at. Uh, what is the wo woman's right to choose? Well, maybe it's the soul's right to choose. With one of those who had um, clear memory of life uh, in the womb, Th this is Penny. Her memory is very clear because she was very, uh, her mother would, would smoke. And whenever mm -hmm. her mother lit up a cigarette and started smoking, that taste, that smoke reached her in the womb. And it bothered her. She didn't like it. She, um, made her ha about half sick. And, uh, you know, she wished her mother wouldn't smoke at all. That was terrible, terrible, terrible. So uh, alert everybody. Mothers, don't smoke, don't drink. Yeah, when you've got when you have a baby, another one uh, is with um, this one is with Al Alma. She was two years old with Alma. She she was in her bedroom. The bedroom door was open. Um, a friend came often to visit the family. He noticed that her door was open. He went into her room. Uh, closed the door and raped her. This is a two-year-old girl. She left her body, viewing uh, the whole scene from above, from the ceiling down. I want everybody to know that an out-of-body experience 
especially with little ones, it could be of any age, really. When you're attacked or in a difficult or fearful situation and the soul leaves the body or, you know, this out-of-body experience, that's a defense mechanism that has nothing to do with you being psychic, has nothing to do with, with any kind of psychism at all. It's a defense mechanism. It's how we protect ourselves when uh, when we are having problems. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, I always thought it was like a something that happened to you. But I, you know, what you're saying is it's something you create that you allow to happen to to preserve kind of your soul. You are preserving your soul. You're preserving your identity. Yes, it, it's it, absolutely preservation. You betcha. The other one is light. Uh, and so many of these experiences are dark light experiences. What does that mean? Well, uh, they're really three lights. And the kids are very clear about this. There's this light that is so, so powerful and so big. It doesn't have a color. It's radiant and it's bright and it's, it's, it's you know, it's so big. And then there's the black light or the dark light. Sometimes they'll say it has um, purple tinges to it. But there's something about this black light or this dark light. Uh, um, and then there's the white light or the bright light. And the bright light, this white light, that, that's a light you can talk to. You can talk to that light, that black or dark light. There's something very comfortable and cozy about that light. So the, <laughs> the, the kids are very clear about these differences. That white light, that's father light. That dark or black light, that's mother light. And that radiant, powerful light, that's God's light. And the father light and the mother light come from God's light. <laughs> and they're very, very clear about that. I, I, just, I love that. Yeah, I love that. Um, and and, and I... I um, I have several cases of these dark light experiences. And, you know, if you've, if you've read the big book of near-death experiences, there, there's a case of an adult in there, in there who um, drew a picture of it. He was rushed to the hospital, needing surgery. Surgery would be the next morning. He was then, you know, sort of settling down for the night as best he could. And this huge, huge black light came to him and engulfed him. The next morning, when the nurses and the doctor came to check on him, the tumor was gone, absolutely gone. There's something about that black light that's very healing. It's, it's just an, a, a remarkable light. What does it, I know a lot of people when they experience these um, near-death experiences, they, a lot of like adults, they come back and they say this experience where they are kind of pulled into this nice, warm, bright space. Um, is, is there, are there changes that change from child experiencers to adults? And is there, or are there similarities? You're saying there was this dark light with this adult, but what kind of similarities and differences are there between children experiences and adult experiences? Certainly with children, you get a lot of intelligence in the brain and the nervous system. Uh, what I found with children uh, in, in this one particular study with children, let's, let's see if I can quote this um, clearly, those who were tested 
when they were old enough to take the standard IQ test in school, tested out between 150 to 160 on the IQ score, 48%, 48% came back genius. If they had a dark light experience instead of a bright light experience between birth and 15, 16 months of age. So we're talking babies here. All of those tested out when they could be tested from 190 and above. There's something about dark light experiences that that really uh, have a tremendous effect on the formation of what's happening in the brain, what's happening in the nervous system. And I would venture to even say what's happening in the digestive system. Yeah, they, they, they go through many, many differences, but, but I want to jump in here and say it, adults too. Adults uh, go through lots of changes after a near-death experience. You know, among, among the biggest is how, how to think and, and speak. You know, most of the adults adults come back. No one else can understand them, <laughs> and they're not able to talk right. Uh, talk in a way that that can really describe what they're going through. So I, I recommend everybody get on my website www.pmhatwater.com. There on the front page, it is is a is a part called. P, uh, NDE after effects. I call that the first aid <laughs> for near-death experiences. Get in there and, and lots of ideas and thoughts and uh, about what happens after a near-death experience. It does tend to turn you around, adult or child. It uh, Most people across the board tend to be more intelligent after a near-death experience. Most people after afterward become healthier or different in their health afterward um one of the surprising things we see is a lowering of the blood blood pressure it's like you don't fit anymore it's like you don't fit society it's like how can you describe what what happened to you when you don't have words and um how can you refit when when you're really not able to uh it's like this idea of um integrating the experience with adults it takes seven to 10 years to integrate their experience. The first three years are the most difficult because, you know, that's when you're the most mixed up. But seven to 10 years. The average child, 20 to 40 years, a child does not integrate. They compensate. Well, what a ch- child wants to do is fit in. You know, somehow mind the parents or or cooperate with a school teacher or somehow grow up in a positive way and date and, you know, marry and be like everybody else. Well, they can't be like everybody else. And so it often results in um, differences in society. Some of them, you know, go in for psychotherapy. Uh, certainly not all by any means, but, you know, with some, <laughs> I, I've had many, many adults say, just go to a psychic. <laughs> You're better than going to a, a, a doctor of any kind. You know, you get more information and it's better 
and it fits. That often is very, very helpful. I'd like to share a little bit because everything you're saying is honestly like almost, it is really, it's really hitting home. So I had a near-death experience. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> so I was born, I had RSV, I was born premature. I went home from the hospital and I, I died at home. I was resuscitated. And as I was in the hospital, they told my mother they were preparing her for me to die. Again, saying, you know, she's pr this is not really a livable, um, you know, what she's going through. And I had pulled out the breathing tube on my own as an infant, like I had self-extubated and I was 100% healthy. They could not describe it. My mom says that they were calling me this miracle baby um, that, you know, having died, come back to life and then be totally healthy and almost immediately after um, that what you're saying is kind of that, that black light where not only did I have this experience, but I became suddenly healthy immediately after. And then as I was old enough, like in the 90s, IQ testing was really like was, was a thing that we really did. So my mom got me tested and I tested well above where, you know, my brother and sister, like not genius, but well over the normal like intelligence level for someone who's considered intelligent. And as my life grew up, I, I've been telling this for to so many people, anyone that will listen is that I don't fit into society. It's not just a society thing. It's broader. It's bigger. It, the society doesn't even make sense to me. The concept of what how we live doesn't make sense to me. And for so many years, I just followed the rules. I stayed in line. I didn't break the rules. I tried to fit in. And then in my late 20s, I kind of just started to realize that maybe it's not society. Maybe it's me not just understanding that concept. So everything you're saying, like I'm literally shaking because what you're saying like is actually validating 33 years of these feelings that nobody could, I couldn't convey to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And that's truly exactly what it's like. The older I've gotten, the, the more distance I have from the event. So it's like now I'm just seeing all these things in my life manifest in ways where it's like now I'm just kind of confused. But I'm coming back to this information that keeps coming. Like every stage of my life keeps reminding me of this experience I had as a child. And it's like I think there's an answer in there that I just have kept trying to hide from. And so now if I can embrace it and really work with the information that you can provide, you know, I can actually get some relief to like all of these other kind of tumultuous kind of things I've been going through because I maybe just haven't been looking in the right direction. How do I put it? There were a lot of the kids who developed PTSD afterward, and some of them even attempted suicide because they couldn't fit in and, and you know, they couldn't make things work. They couldn't, they, they, um, they just couldn't fit in. So there's a whole chapter in the book uh, the Forever Angels on on PTSD and NDEs, and it, and it, it it's not because they don't love everybody. It's it's not because there's a world out there that that's valid. Rather, it's 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 because they don't fit. They don't understand why they don't fit, and they don't they they're having all kinds of problems piecing it together. And what I recommend for the younger ones, certainly, hopefully for the older ones too, but the younger ones, teach them visualization techniques. That's all it takes. Teach them visualization techniques. Then they can go back, be there, visit, and then return to life as always here with mom and dad at, the, at this particular time in history. And um, 
you know, everything is fine. And whenever they, whenever they want to check in and, you know, have that, that infusion from the other side, all they have to do is, is, is visualization techniques. It's really that simple with a child. We're, we're, we're forgetting the, the, that a child doesn't see things like we do. They just absolutely don't. Uh, for, for a child, they're in that bright, beautiful world when they're not breathing. They're, they're with the beautiful people when they're not breathing. But when they're starting to breathe again, when they're breathing again, that world is gone. So a child's logic is, aha, I was there when I wasn't breathing. Oh, then the way to get back is to stop breathing. And then I'm back in that world. They don't think in terms that that's harmful that they would hurt anybody. They don't think it that way at all. It's just a way to get back there and be in that world. That's why I'm recommending so much visualization techniques because they can get back there without having to kill themselves or mm -hmm. having any other you know, real problems here. Uh, but you know, one of the things I've found with these child ex experiencers, I've got 74%, now that's 397 people, 74% went on and developed a very successful life. A number of them became millionaires, just very successful. 74%, remember that figure, 74%. 74% wanted to leave either by suicide or somehow get out and leave. Same figure, 74%. Very same figure. It's, 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 it's this idea. 34% were positive about having had the NDE. 61% were negative. And it's, all, it's only this idea of home. They lost their home. Uh, with children, 90% do not bond with their parents. That doesn't mean they don't love their parents. They, they just don't bond with them. So we're, we're, we're talking about a whole class of people that, um, that are thinking in very different ways. And, and they just don't bond as we think they should or would. With adults, it's this idea of... Again, not fitting. They just go back to life, their job, wherever they are. <laughs> I call it I call it the rooftop experience. The first three years, you really want to get on top of a roof and yell at the whole world. There's no death. God is real. Death isn't. It's, it's sort of the, the, the evangelistic phase. <laughs> you know, that's for the first three years. And and then the next four, you you know, you sort of get acclimated, and you know, you're back in life, and you know, uh, you somehow want to fit. So that's the idea of seven to ten years, but invariably with adults too. After about fifteen years, they many of them tend to crash, crash in the sense that suddenly things don't fit. They don't feel that they fit. Suddenly things don't work. You know, there might be a house fire. There might be an automobile accident. Whatever happens. And they feel like that their ability to handle that is, is not what it was before. It, it, it's sort of like they haven't found yet the pearl of great price. And, and if, if they can get through that second drop, 
then indeed, you know, they, they have a life that, that, that is just, you know, it's marvelous. It really is marvelous after that, that second drop. But I'll tell you, they've got some things to go through. And those that claim, oh, well, there's nothing to it. I went to a psychic or I went to um, a meditation meeting, you know, and I, and, and I got through it just fine. And, and you'll find invariably <laughs> after a few more years, it wasn't that fine. It's, it's like we need to go, we, we need to realize that we're different and that, and that we slot into the world yeah. in, a, in a different way. And if you're able to do that, then the near-death experience be, becomes, gee, this incredible gift that we were given to some, somehow be different and somehow make a different way in the world and um, life becomes richer and better. And you, you referred to God being real, death being fake, heaven, this light. What do you think, if you're comfortable with sharing your, your personal opinion, but where do we go when we die? Where, what's after this? Do you, what do, you, do you have thoughts on that? Oh, we go on with the journey. Where do you think we go? The journey goes on and on and on. This idea of, of, of life itself, we're here to learn. This is what I've seen over and over and over again. I've certainly seen it in my own life. We're here to learn. Good, bad, or indifferent, we're here to learn. When the learning is over, we leave. It's like the little children. They, 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 really, they really have a way of, of understanding this. That when you go, go on, when you leave, you go back to that stream of consciousness. And, and you go on and on until the next dip, which is another life. Then you go back to the stream and, and the next dip, that's a life. You go back to the stream and that stream of consciousness. Who can really define it? it you know, the, the old idea of wh what's it all about, Elfie? <laughs> My understanding, is, as near as I can tell, is that, it, um, that this whole drama that we call life is just so exquisite good, bad, or indifferent, whether we suffered or whether we gained. It's exquisite in the sense of what we were able to take in, what we were able to learn, what happened to us. And when we're gone, there's more. And there's more after that. And there doesn't seem to be any end to the mores. It, it's, it's this sense of, you know, the, a manual for developing humans. What's a human? God, man, God, woman. What is that all about? It, 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 it's this understanding or, or this appreciation or um, regret that when we die, we're not dead and we go on. Next leg of the journey, yeah. Well, what dies is who we were, who we are in this life. In this life, I'm PMH Atwater. When I die, who knows who I'll be next time? Or even if there is a next time for me. Who knows? Uh, I, I, did I did put together the, this one little thing, what we can learn from near-death experiences. And I'd like to share it with you. Death does not end life. Only the scenery changes at death. Many see departed loved ones, pets, birds. Uh, a lot of people see birds in these experiences. Angels. Light can pre pre predominate. White, bright, dark, black or power beyond light that is impossible to describe. We are all more capable, smarter than we think we are. Mind is endless, only thoughts limit. Everyone is psychic, creative, inventive, and love. Life is 
worth its living. There is a central source of existence. Some call this God, Allah, or hundreds of other names for deity. All healing is based on the willingness to change. Hear that? All healing is based on the willingness to change. So is forgiveness. Prayer is real and it works. Children see prayer as a bright or rainbow-banded light that passes from sender to receiver. Love is the only standard that exists. Choice is the only process. Oh my goodness. That You have said so many things that have affirmed what other people have shared with me, how love is the most important transaction. Love is the only thing. And prayer is real. It's also called manifestation in some belief systems. God, all of the, the universe, that power, it's all the same. It's all just what we call it. And I think it was just beautiful. <laughs> I am going to replay that for years to come. <laughs> We play it again and again and again, yeah. Yes. Well, PMH, our time is drawing to an end. Um, really? For this interview. Yes, yes. I'm so sorry. I would love to have you back at another time and we can keep talking. If people would like to connect with you or um, how can they find your website, your books? How can they stay connected to you? Well, certainly www.pmhatwater.com. That's my website my newsletter. So get into the newsletter section and there is an archive so you can check out my newsletters. But please know it's only for the curious because I'll talk about anything and everything. There's all kinds of stuff and uh, you can keep track of the of what's going on if you have the news, newsletter because I let pe people know little bitty things once in a while about myself. What I want everybody to know is that we're here for a reason. Doesn't matter what that reason is. It really doesn't matter at all. We're here for a reason. And that reason is purposeful. Whether we gain or whether we lose, that reason is purposeful. So live life with gusto. I do. <laughs> PMH, thank you so, so very much. Please come back. I would love to do this with you as often as we can at, at your convenience. Um, once again, thank you so much for sharing your light and energy and knowledge and all of the good things. Yeah. Love it, love it, love it, dear. Thank you. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye.